Okay, che- uh, check. One, two. Buckle my shoe. Don't get wise. Bubble eyes. Understand. Rubber band. Sure you do. Tennis shoe. All right. Good. You do not want access to my mind. Let me tell you. There's crazy stuff going on in there. Let's uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we do thank you that uh, though we are undeserving for no assignable cause except your love and good pleasure, you have called us to yourself. And Father, may we enjoy the rich blessings of having the name of Christ upon ourselves. But help us, Father, that we might not use our freedom in Christ as a license for sin, as a cloak for vice. Help us, Father, to be mighty in the faith. Help us, Father, to be good warriors who bring the message of the love of Christ. And Father, may we ever feed upon Him. May we ever recognize, Father, who we are in Christ. And may, Father, we avail ourselves of those things that You have provided for this. In His name we pray. Amen. Uh, We're on talk nine. This is the Means of Grace, part two. We had talked about the, um, the marks of the church. Uh, and uh, so I'm going through kind of explaining those uh, that we might grasp these things and recognize these are the things that God has provided to uh, primary things, if you will, that God has provided to, uh, to nourish us, if you will, in Himself. We, talked, we had just talked about the preaching of the Word of God, preaching of the law and the gospel to the full extent, if you will, of both. Like I'd like to now talk about uh, the second uh, in these uh, marks of the church, which are the sacraments. I think biblically speaking, uh, you'll not find many things more emphasized than the sacraments. Now, this may not be readily apparent to many modern Christians because of the de facto disdain that many modern Christians have for the Old Testament. I mean, again, I'm speaking from myself. And I remember thinking, why is, you know, and I'm speaking mainly this morning about uh, the, the, uh, the Lord's Supper, although obviously this includes baptism as well. But I remember thinking, why are these such big issues? Why is it such a big deal? You know, the Lord's Supper, baptism, why, why, you know, these things to me, at least in my reading, of the New Testament, and even when I was reading the Old Testament, they just didn't seem to be, you know, all that prominent. But one can hardly read a few chapters in the Old Testament without stumbling upon a sacrifice, an altar, a memorial, a pillar, a ceremonial washing, and on and on and on. You start reading the Old Testament, and you see over and over and over just if you will, millions of gallons of blood being spilled, right? I mean, the, an- the number of the animals sacrificed and uh, just the, the detailed instruction of, if you will, these Old Testament sacraments taking place. 
to the point where it's almost laborious to read. You know, you're going through, I mean, I don't know, I remember when I first started reading the Bible, you know, they said to start reading in John, but uh, I thought, I'll start reading in Matthew, right? And he begat, and he begat, and he begat, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm like, is this going to get in- interesting? And, uh, you know, and then I'm reading in the Old, so I go, I'll go to the Old Testament, you read Genesis. I'm like, hey, I saw that movie. And Genesis is so interesting, and Exodus is so interesting, Leviticus, Numbers, you know, Deuteronomy. And you start looking and you're going, wow, what is all this, you know, and take a bull, and take a pigeon, and take a lamb, and take a goat, and you're reading this over and over and over again. I think, I know I erred, and I think the modern evangelical errs when they think that the simplicity of the Lord's table compared to the Old Covenant sacrifices is a matter of de-emphasis. As a matter of fact, I think it's just the opposite. It should be emphasized all the more. If I can read a portion of, of Hebrews to you, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 through 27. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, For they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord is sworn and will not relent. Uh, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. As also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. I think one of the big points, obviously, in all of Hebrews is the superiority of the New Covenant, the superiority of Christ. It seems that one of the points of Hebrews is to recognize also that there is a greater culpability that we have with the greater knowledge that we have in the New Covenant than they had in the Old Covenant. You know, how much more, right, he says, are those responsible who trample underfoot the blood of the covenant. If in the Old Testament they were convicted by the witness of two or three, how much more those who trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant. So there's this idea that in the New Covenant there's a greater responsibility, and I would argue the greater responsibility comes because of the greater knowledge. I mean, we just have more information. You know, uh, as John says, that, that which we beheld. They only saw, if you will, in, you know, in, in images and types and foreshadows, we see the full expression. And with that full expression comes a greater responsibility, a greater culpability as well. And so we should not think that somehow those Old Testament sacrifices that we see so much in the Old Testament, when Jesus, quite frankly, summed it all up in that one cup, in that one meal, somehow de-emphasizes the importance of that sacrament. I mean, you know, you ever hear people talking about how they could take the whole solar system and squeeze it into like one little baseball-sized thing, you know, that, that would weigh a bazillion tons and stuff. I mean, it's a matter of recognizing that all of that which we read of in the Old Testament really doesn't vanish away in a certain sense. I mean, the mode vanishes away, but what it represents, right, what it, what it all points to comes into that cup, into the loaf, 
And so I think it's important if we read the whole Bible to recognize the importance of the sacraments as God is expressing it in the entirety of Scripture rather than looking for one or two verses in the New Testament. Because when you read the New Testament, you don't see it maybe as much. If the pure preaching of the gospel is nurturing and life-changing as it reaches our hearts through our ears, the pure participation in the sacraments which accompany the word, both baptism and the Lord's table, which we see, smell, taste, touch, all the more imparts to us the powerful message of grace which saves, redeems, protects, and nurtures in love. So I think it's a matter of bringing our friends to the place where they recognize the value. As I said earlier, when I did the radio show, people would call in and I'd say, when was the last time you took the Lord's Supper? When was the last time you participated in this? And it is something that is quite neglected. It is something that people, quite frankly, just view. If you were to take the top ten, if you were to say, name the top ten things that you do as a Christian to somehow, you know, be involved in the sanctification of your life, you know, in terms of taking the old man off, putting the new man on, you know, trans- having your mind transformed, to the, you know, renewing uh, your mind transformed to the image of Christ, and so on. You would find, I think you would find that baptism in the Lord's Supper would not even be on the list. It's just, they're, they're just not viewed as all that important. And, uh, and uh, you know, and with that comes, you know, a lack of argumentation about what they mean and what they represent. It's just not a big issue. And I think it's important for us as Christians to make our brothers and sisters aware of the fact that this is what God has provided for us, that we might have greater assurance and, if you will, greater sanctification in our walk with Christ. Okay, now I'd like to talk a little bit about the, uh, the final uh, aspect of the uh, marks of the church, church discipline. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5:11 through 13 writes, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person, the evil person that he spoke of earlier who was involved in the incestuous relationship. Discipline. Preaching, sacraments, discipline. We had a disciplinary issue in our church, and the person under discipline moved to Orange County, started attending a large non-denominational church, contemporary style church chapel. And I called her and I, you know, seeking to proceed with the disciplinary process. And which, by the way, is my least favorite duty as a pastor. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, I don't know who, I don't know if anybody enjoys that. I mean, it's just, it's like, you know, I know God has called me to spank my children when they're disobedient. I've never enjoyed that. I don't like doing that. It's just a matter of doing something I know is right. You know, it's what I've been called to do. And that's the way I feel, you know, about uh, disciplinary issues, too. It's not like, okay, I get to go in and do discipline today, you know. And yet God has called us to do it. It's an important thing to do. And I was proceeding with that process. And uh, she said that her new ch- she was attending a new church, and her new pastor said she was forgiven. And she arranged uh, a conversation between the two of us. I mean, we had, it was obviously longer than that, but she says, I don't need to do that. I talked to my new pastor, and he said, God forgave me. And I'm trying to explain, well, I, you know, I don't doubt the forgiveness of God, but 
you know, what you've done is, was an act of rebellion. You're still doing it. And, you know, this needs to be reconciled. This, this needs, we need to bring this to its conclusion. And she's like, I've been forgiven. And it, it was this whole thing that I, I'm, like, as if I was telling her that God doesn't forgive. And it was a difficult conversation to have. And especially because this other pastor had basically blown us off. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, but when people come to our church who've been disciplined by another church, I send them back. I don't go, you know, you're forgiven. Come on, have a seat. You know, that, I think that's inappropriate. And so I, she said, well, my pastor, and I go, well, maybe we, I can talk with your pastor. And I, go, and I said, if your pastor instructs you to come back and go through with this, will you be willing to, you know, capitulate to that? And she said, sure. So she gave me his number, and we made a couple of phone calls back and forth, and I finally got him on the line. He'd been in ministry for 17 years. He believed the Bible. He said he didn't believe in church discipline. And he didn't believe in church membership. He thought it was overbearing. He thought church discipline was overbearing. And, you know, he had some negative things to say about it. So I pointed out Matthew 18. Now keep in mind, when, you know, when, I, when, I, do, when I do this, I'm all prayed up when I make that phone call. Because I'm thinking, all right, what I don't want to do is immediately get into an altercation. You know, I, that's not my goal here at all. I don't want to get into a big fight. Like, I know the Bible better than you fight, okay? My, my goal in this conversation is really uh, to, to edify the guy I'm talking to. That, uh, that's a, one of the issues. Obviously, I want to deal with the issue of discipline. But I'm all, like, ta- I'm as nice as I can possibly be. I'm mustering up niceness from the core of my being, you know? And so I'm in, and I'm talking to this guy, and he said he didn't believe in these things. And I pointed out, you know, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, which I just read. Because he said he believed the Bible. The Bible believer. I'm like, well, what about what Jesus says, you know? You know, take two or three. And I, you know, I quoted that passage. And what about, you know, to the Apostle Paul talking about, you know, removing the person from your midst? And he said that if something like that happened in their church, he and another pastor, he mentioned the other pastor, would address the person and ask them to either stop what they were doing or leave the church. So I said, so you do believe in church discipline? And he said, yeah, well, I guess we do. But just not in a very organized way. It's just not really organized. It's more of a um, spontaneous kind of discipline. Then I asked him about um, church membership. I said, do you, you know, I quoted Hebrews 13, 17, right? You know, to submit to those under your care, you know, because they're going to give an account to God. I go, do you know? who you're going to give an account to, to God? Do you know who those people are? I go, you know Hebrews 13, 17? He knew it. I mean, he knows, these guys know the Bible. It's not like they don't know the Bible. I go, do, do you know who you're going to have to give an account to for God? And do they know, who they're, do people in your church know who they're to submit to in the Lord? Do, is that relationship defined and understood? And you know, he was a great guy. He really was. It was a very enjoyable conversation. And he said, you know what? You've really given me a lot to think about. I thought, you know, so I, what I was saying was so simple, right? If I said anything just now that was earth-shattering or shaking or like, did you, were big eyes open? I don't think so. But it was a couple of simple passages and the practical application of those passages, which cannot happen apart from church membership, which cannot happen, quite frankly, without some acknowledgement of the fact that you need to know that this person is in a place where they can be disciplined by you. Those, and, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, the conversation now continues. And he, in fact, instructed the lady to come back. And she did. 
and she met with our elder board, and we, have, and we reached really an amicable, amicable conclusion to this disciplinary process. She repented of it, and things worked out pretty nicely. Accountability is still viewed as important in modern Christendom. Everybody, everybody thinks accountability is great, uh, and I agree. When I went to the National Youth Workers Convention years and years ago, when I was a youth pastor, and uh, Tony Campolo was speaking, and, um, you know, he made it quite clear that to him the most valuable thing in his Christian life was a group of men that he met with every Saturday morning and they held each other accountable. Now, I think there's value to that. I think there's value to that kind of friendship and accountability. But isn't it interesting that the most valuable thing in his Christian life wasn't the pure preaching of the word, the sacraments, and discipline, that kind of accountability, which is biblical accountability. That's the real accountability. I remember I had a guy come up to me one time and he had heard me preach and he felt like I was challenging, you know. And he came up and he goes, you know what, you're just the kind of pastor that I need. He goes, because, you know, I'm gonna have, you know I'm, I have a struggle and I'm blah, blah, blah. And he's talking about all the times that he sins and rebels and stuff. And he, he was talking about how, you know, he could, I could, he could be accountable to me, you know. And I go, well, yeah, you know, I totally would excommunicate you if you did that. <laughs> he's like... But that's, you know, I was half kidding, but I was but genuinely serious when you get right down to it. It's a matter of kind of coming up front and going, what does this look like? I remember when I used to coach, I coached high school sports. I had a girls team I coached, and we had a pretty successful season, and the boys uh, wanted me to coach them. And, um, one of the, and they were just a bunch of rabble-rousers. I mean, they were troublemakers, and they were making life miserable for their coach. And this one guy, the most miserable guy on the team, and, you know, I, I, I got along with him okay, but I wasn't coaching him, right? And he comes up to me and he goes, you know what, Coach Vigiano, you should be our coach. And I go, Greg, you know what the first thing I would do as I was coaching you? You know what the first thing I would do? He goes, what? I go, cut you off the team. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I'm not gonna, I wouldn't put up with your stuff. It's a matter of kind of, uh, you know, we explain that right up front. Let's define the relationship here. We need to understand. In short, I think you all recognize this. We, people need to be in a place where if they find themselves in notorious and obstinate sin, that the kingdom of God will be shut to them. The kingdom of God as it's expressed in the visible church. And I think we all recognize that the process of discipline involves a one-on-one confrontation of a verifiable sin. And if there's no repentance, and this is you know, the Matthew 18 model, if there's no repentance, there's a confrontation by two or three witnesses, which along the lines of Old Testament law. And if there's no repentance, the matter is taken to the church and so on. We all know that. We, I think most of us are probably familiar with that process. And finally, as Jesus teaches, if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. I would have to argue that this particular mark of the church is virtually non-existent in modern evangelicalism. It just doesn't happen. Discipline is not taking place. I think our friends need to know how critical this is. They need to know what a great act of love this is. This is an act of love. These are the words of Jesus. This is, these are red letters, right? Not that, that even, quite frankly, I mean, isn't it all by the Holy Spirit, right? But sometimes that gives people a little more punch. You know, these are the words of the greatest lover of all time, saying that we need to do this. 
Now, there are many reasons for the process of church discipline. Our confession, and I believe clearly backed by the Scripture, teaches that it is, quote, necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of defending brethren, for deterring of others from the like offenses, for purging out that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel, and for preventing the wrath of God which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. This is a much neglected yet clearly biblical admonition which nurtures the bride of Christ. It deters others from similar offenses. It purges from the church the notion that certain behavior is acceptable to God. By the way, this is an important point, I think, to make. Because I had somebody come up, because we did about, we've, in my 16 years at our church, I think we've done six disciplinary processes out to their final conclusion. Because usually, if you go through the stages, we find that people repent. You know, if you start going down the process, it, it works. You know, it really does. But we had probably about six, I think, that finally went to the point of excommunication. And of those six, only one person has been reinstituted, you know, as a member in good standing of their repentance. And so, you know, somebody came up to me and said, you know, this, obviously this church discipline stuff doesn't even work. I mean, it's not working. People aren't repenting. I think it's an interesting observation and one that needs to be addressed because my first comment was, number one, there are a lot of times this process went through when the pe- person did repent, but it was never brought to the congregation. She so don't even really know about it. But another thing is, they don't, people generally don't understand the other reasons for church discipline. It certainly is to reclaim and regain the offending brother, but there are other reasons as well. It purges from the church that the notion of certain behavior is acceptable to God. It removes occasion for Christ and his gospel to be dishonored. I mean, I think that's so common today. I think it's a very common thing that as a result of the behavior of people in the church, Christ is dishonored. I mean, if the polls are accurate, you know, the number of divorces and so on in, you know, major churches is in terms of what's going on in the world, the difference is negligible. There's really no difference. Now, those statistics, I think, are a little bit skewed because if you start doing statistics on the number of people who actually attend church every week, the number of statistics on people actually praying with their families and so on, then all of a sudden that statistic changes drastically. But the number of people who actually say that they attend church and would call themselves Christians in terms of their uh, actual behavior that can be observed, the difference is negligible, and that offends, if you will, the honor of Christ's church. I think there's a really interesting you know, sad phenomenon going on today. Uh, and I've, I've observed it twice just in the last two months. I, we, did, we did the pub. I did the pub. Uh, and uh, there was a gentleman who came. And um, he uh, was actually not invited. I mean, you know, he wasn't in the original group of people who was going to come, but he came anyway. Remember the pub? Remember when I talked about the pub? Where we kind of talked about the God and the Bible and so on. And it's just kind of open forum, question and answer, and, uh, you know, wine and stuff. And uh, he came, and he said, you know what? He walked in and goes, i got a basketball game at 8.30, so, you know, just so you know, I'm going to leave, you know. So we started talking, and, um, you know, if I were charismatic, I would say he, he was full of the Holy Ghost. I mean, he just stood there, and he was captivated at the conversation about God, about the Bible, 
He just listened. I mean, he was so focused. The next, he didn't leave for the basketball game. He stayed. He showed up the next week. He showed up the next week. He showed up the next All five weeks he was there every time. He lives in Orange County. He lives in Irvine. He started driving up to our church every Sunday. What must I do? What must I do? To, how do I get, you know, this whole, this whole thing? You know, he started dating somebody, and she was Roman Catholic. And he's like, what do I do? I'm, I'm going to marry this person, you know. And she wants to raise our kids in the Roman Catholic Church. You know, when we get married, and so I'm talking with them, going, well, who's going to wear the spiritual pants in this family? You know, I mean, I was nice about it, but it's like, well, these are decisions you have to make. You have to recognize biblically you're the, head of the spiritual head of the household. And we had, so he started bringing her. And they both came to Christ. They both stood before the congregation. They both made the vows. I mean, it was just an amazingly wonderful thing. Matter of fact, I'm doing their wedding on Saturday. And, um, but here's an interesting thing, and they won't mind that I'm sure, because I'm not mentioning their name. There's only probably two people in the room who know I'm talking about. And, uh, and they already know this. So. But they had become members in good standing in our church. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at their... Um, you know, uh, data cards, and I realized they had the same address. And I'm like, you know, you know, I mean, is it just the same, different apartment numbers? And, and so I'm like, oh boy. I'm thinking, how in the world, because ta- we're talking about people who were just enthusiastically coming forward. We're not talking about people playing a game here. They're like emailing me with all their questions and and so excited and telling their friends and blah, blah, blah. And they had the same address. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a tough phone call. This is going to be a hard phone, you know. And sure enough, before I got the phone call, or before I made the phone call, I got a phone call. And the phone call was, you know what, maybe you know this, but we're living together. Is there something wrong? Is, that, is there a problem with that? I mean, I'm glad you called. But... Uh, we live in a culture where people... Now, this has happened twice. I mean, there's, I'm doing another wedding in July. Same situation. You know, where they came, they came to the pub, they came to faith, same thing. And I'm like, doesn't it seem kind of obvious? Isn't that obvious? That, but it wasn't obvious. It wasn't obvious to them because, you know, I think 50 years ago it would have been obvious. But the way that the church now looks to people... It doesn't look that way. That, it's just not that presentation. It was something that they kind of, you know, finally kind of figured out. And I'm not even sure how they figured it out. But we live in a culture now where the church is viewed by the world in such a way that their behavior is insignificant in terms of the distinction. And one of the reasons is the church doesn't take the responsibility to discipline in such a way as to demonstrate the purity of Christ within that body. Now, to, like I was saying, like to us, this is just so obvious, right? And what I'm saying to you, you know, I mean, this is just like, but to put people coming into the faith, or, you know, and this, this guy was raised, they were both raised, I think, Catholic, you know. But th- this was just an eye-opener to them. It wasn't something, I think they were genuinely ignorant, and I think by the Spirit of God, they were convicted in such a way as they kind of started to figure it out right before I called them, and they called me. I mean, how bland has the church become that it's not viewed in any pristine sense at all, but in fact, it has become an object of ridicule 
Has it not? Is that, and is that not one of the judgments we read of in the Old Testament? That the church will become, you know, my people will become a byword and an object of ridicule? Sometimes I think the modern uh, evangelical views the ridicule as persecution. I think there's a genuine persecution. But sometimes the ridicule is the judgment of God. Because the church has become so bland. It's become so lukewarm. And I think one of the reasons the church has become that way is because they don't take seriously what the marks of the church are, especially when it comes to church discipline. It's virtually non-existent in the church today. In today's uh, remedial Christian culture, we obsess with taking normal Christians and turning them into spirit-filled super-Christians through what I had discussed earlier, snake oil Christianity, yet I think we neglect the purity of Christ's church, thus jeopardizing the glory of God and the souls of men. We strain at gnats, and yet we swallow camels. That's been my observation. We work so hard at the things, you know, that we work so hard at, at the, you know, to, to, at the snake oil, and that we're ignoring uh, the weightier matters. I wonder what a wonderful experiment it would be for the church to implement the counsel of God to test, as it were, the power of His guidance. You know, we read of the tithe, right, in Malachi, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Now, if this is true of the tithe being a less weighty matter, as Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, how much greater the blessing when applied to his word, his sacrament, and his discipline. That concludes um, part two of this. And I know I'm early, so I'm going to go ahead and open it up for any questions that you might have. Oh, really? You've got to be kidding me. What am I working with here? Well, let me see if I can remember, because I'll tell you, I'll bet you anything I can remember that whole booklet. You know, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Oh, what's the question? What's the sinner's prayer is the question. Yeah, it's uh, law one, right? God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Law two, man is sinful, therefore he cannot know and receive God's wonderful plan for his life. Law three, uh, we must each receive Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Law for anyway. Then you get down to the end. Which circle best represents your life? Which would you ha- like to have represent your life? That one. Would you like to ask Jesus into your heart right now? Yes. Here's a recommended print. Dear Lord Jesus, I need you. Uh, please come into my life and begin to make me the kind of person you want me to be. Is kind of a basically what it is. You're asking Jesus to come into your heart to save your soul. You know, cleanse me and begin to make me the kind of person you want me to be. And so, I mean, I don't think there's anything inherently heretical about the desire or, you know, that you want to be basically saved and cleansed, you know. But there is this sense where it's a very kind of mystical thing because now Christ is in, you, is in your heart. Now, we recognize that in a certain sense the Spirit of Christ is in our heart, dwells in our heart. But here's, here's what I have found to be kind of a problem. 
Hebrews, in Hebrews it says, fix your eyes upon Jesus, right? The author and perfecter of your faith. And so, where do we look when we fix our eyes upon Jesus? If I've asked him into my heart, what we find is a lot of people are looking to their own heart for their assurance, for their comfort, for wisdom, and their knowledge. Hence the whole idea of being led by the Spirit, because the Spirit of Christ is in your heart, your assurance is in your own heart. And yet at the same time, we recognize that our heart is still foul and corrupt. What was a big move for me is when I realized that when I fix my eyes upon Jesus, who I'm fixing my eyes upon is Jesus who's at the right hand of the Father, who intercedes for me, who presents his own blood in the Holy of Holies. You know, I'm fixing my eyes outside of myself rather than inside of myself. And that's where that kind of leads because it's a very, it becomes a very mystical thing. But that's what the sinner's prayer is. The sinner's prayer, I'd mentioned, by the way, since I was talking to somebody, I, was talking, I had a friend who had, he was a pastor in the PCUSA. He had two doctorates and one in systematic theology and I don't know what the other one was in. And he started becoming more reformed in his thinking. He was a follower of Bart and the Niebuhr brothers and all that stuff. You know, I mean, he had a very kind of neo-orthodox view of things. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's moving into a more reformed thinking. So we go to the soup plantation and we're having lunch. And he goes, okay, so if we're not going to have people pray the sinner's prayer, as from, you know, from a Calvinistic reformed point of view, what do you do? I thought, what an interesting question for a guy with two doctorates. And I thought, I thought you know what, I like, I like my answers to be as biblical as possible, right? You know, if I appeal to, you know, things that are outside... So I go, well, you know what? Let's look at the way it is in the Bible, right? You, you, you have people, you, 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 you tell them, you call them to believe, to trust, to follow me, believe and be baptized, you know, call upon the name of the Lord. There are a lot of things we could quote right out of the Bible where you can present the gospel other than what they're doing. You know, it's, it's right there many times, over and over and over again. And so it's really a matter of developing a more biblical presentation of the gospel, where you present the gospel and you say, call in the name. You know, I, I, I go to a mission uh, once a month in, in uh, Wilmington. It's a tough little part of town. And uh, a couple of years ago, I started going there, and, and they, uh, they had fired the last Calvinist they had, OPC guy, too. I don't know who he was. And they didn't want him in there anymore because he kept telling them that everybody that God might hate him. You know, so I'm like, okay, that might not be the best approach. You know, God may hate you guys. You know. And uh, so they asked me, um, uh, you know, they were a little tentative because they knew I was OPC. So they got the, I got on the phone and we're talking. They're like, so you're a Calvinist. I go, yeah. So they go, are you going to preach the gospel? Are you going to give them, you know, an opportunity to receive Christ? I go, sure. They're like, well, because the last Calvinist we had wasn't doing that. I go, well, let me tell you where my Calvinism kicks in. I go, I'll preach, I will preach to them out of the Word of God. I'll preach the gospel. I will tell them and call upon them in a winsome fashion to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And where my Calvinism kicks in is, I am confident that the only way they'll respond is by the grace of God. And she goes, well, we believe that. Well, welcome to Calvinism. But it does affect a little bit the presentation. You know, the old uh, God is a gentleman. He, not, he will not force his way into your life presentation of the gospel. You've ever heard that one? Yes? You know, God's a gentleman. He's not going to force his way. And there's the Revelation 3.20, right? You ever see that picture of Jesus? Don't get me on the whole pictures of Jesus thing, right? And he's standing at the door. And guess what's not on the door? Yeah, there's no doorknob. 
Right? He's knocking and he won't get, you know. And then, and then you go to Lydia, right? Who God just takes her heart, right? You go to Ezekiel, God takes your heart. And it's a matter of kind of going, look at, do we really want a biblical presentation of the gospel? Because I don't read anywhere in the Bible any presentation of the gospel saying God is a gentleman, he will not go where he's not invited. That's nowhere. What we do see in the Bible is believe, repent, trust, follow. We see those words. So those are the words that have to go out there as opposed to would you like to receive Jesus as your Savior now and pray the sinner's prayer? You know? And, I, and I, I think it's an eye-opener because I think most of the people I know who believe in the sinner's prayer believe in the Bible. I mean, it's not like they don't believe in the Bible, but it's an eye-opener. I know it was for me when I came to realize that that's really not the biblical method of uh, coming to faith. I mean, I prayed the sinner's prayer a few times before it kicked in, you know. <laughs> yeah, Paul. Uh, you know, it's just speculation, I guess. You know, oh, where, where do I see the church? Thanks, Bill, because I'm terrible at that. Where do, where do I see the church going in the next 30 to 50 years? Uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't really speculate. I know there's a huge postmodern movement in a lot of the seminaries, and there's a trickle-down effect, you realize, when, you know, because it goes from the seminary professors to the students to the pulpits, you know, and so what's happening in the seminaries now affects the Christian in the, pul- in the pew in 10 or 20 years f- from now, and there's huge anti-intellectual, anti-propositional uh, movement going on. And um, it's just, I mean, it's absurd, it really is. And if you have dialogues with these guys, um, which I have had at Fuller, uh, these are really easy arguments to win. But it, does, it just doesn't matter because they don't, they don't have any high regard for argumentation. You know, at least they do until it doesn't suit them, you know. And so that's kind of discouraging to me. Oh, and at the same time, there's been a kind of a grassroots uh, reform movement. You know, uh, guys like uh, obviously R.C. Sproul and uh, the White Horse Inn guys, you know, and uh, different people who've become a little bit more high profile. They've got, so, you know, both are happening, but I don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, at my age, I think I've seen a real decline in my lifetime. You know, I don't have, I mean, it's just my observation. I have a, I'm, my eschatology is pretty optimistic, and so I don't think we're in the last days, uh, but we might be in the last days of America, you know? I mean, it might be that. I, I you know, I don't, I, but I, I, you know, I'm not much of a prognosticator, you know, but uh, those are the battles ahead of us. I just know this. I, I'm, I'm firmly convinced, I should say, of this, that what we're talking about, these types of things, the gospel, the law of God, the sacraments, the church discipline, the church being what the church ought to be, is really an insurmountable force. All the kingdoms, right? There's only one kingdom that's going to endure to the end, right? It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of Christ. And even as flawed as and imperfect as that kingdom is, no kingdom stands but that kingdom. It's really interesting what's happening in China. Because in China, uh, they have, um, you know, in the last 40 or 50 years, they went from about, I think, 80,000 Christians to like 40 million uh, Christians because in China, the, the government wants to appear open. You know, they want to appear uh, westernized. So they made the critical error of allowing there to be churches. You know, government-run churches. You know, the three-self church. But here's the problem. In those churches, guess what they allowed? Bibles. And guess what they allowed? Preachers. 
Now, they even, if the church gets too big, the government will read the sermons and make sure that there's nothing offensive to the state because it's officially still an atheistic country. But they've allowed, if you will, if you understand my, 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 uh, my uh, metaphor here, they've allowed, if you will, the cancer of Christianity into their body, and there's no stopping it. And so I'm very optimistic uh, about the power of the gospel and where it will go. I just don't know that in, in Paul, in your lifetime or my lifetime, how it's going to be here. Uh, I just know what I think. I think I know the methods that God has given to us for the fight. And I think, you know, you know some things, so you lose little battles. I mean, I can't help but think we've lost the homosexual battle, you know, at least for the time. You know, you can't turn on the TV. You can't go to a movie. You can't do anything, you know. Every, time, every law that's being passed is, you know, this has got to be in the curriculum for the five-year-olds now and so on. I teach a Bible study every Tuesday morning for 16 years at a retirement home. And they're all 60, 70, 80, 90. One lady was 104. They just cannot believe it. You know, they're like, what in the world is going on? I mean, they just can't believe where the culture has gone. I remember one lady remembered Kitty Hawk, you know. This is a few years ago. I'm like, you remember Kitty Hawk? And they just could not believe, that, that's where the, the airplane was invented. They just could not believe, you know, what the whole, this was an interesting thing for me because they're like, they thought there would never come a time ever when there would be, you know, gay marriage. They're like, that is unthinkable, right? So then, the very next week, I'm talking to an ethics class at the local college. And they think that there will never come a time that NAMBLA will have its way. NAMBLA, no? North America Men-Boy Lover Association. They're trying to get the consent age down to six. They have a web page. I mean, they have a movement. The ACLU is defending them right now in a lawsuit. I mean, this, you, you look at that, and what, what are we all thinking? No way, right? Never going to happen. But it's interesting. Those 18-year-olds, they were saying the same thing. It's never going to happen. You're an you're absurd to even make the comparison between that movement and this movement. You look up their webpage. I'm writing, I'm preparing a column right now for the local paper. It always amazes me that they print my columns. If you want to, by the way, if you give me your email address, I'll, I'll forward these things to you and you can read them. Uh, you know, it's always six to 800 words. It's just quick, but I'm preparing a column because if you read the NAMBLA webpage and you go to some of the gay, gay uh, and uh, lesbian webpages and you look at their um, method, it's the same. You know, they, for example, they, they have a name that they call us. Okay? Who don't think it's a good thing, right? You know, they have a, there's a name, right? You're homophobic, right? You actually have a disease. You have a psychological disease. Although I always find it interesting that they have no problem ridiculing you because of your disease. What other disease do people ridicule you for having? Right? Yet yeah, yeah, they're open about it. So it's more, you know, of a pejorative name-calling thing than it is acknowledging a true disease. Well, if I've got homophobia, be nice to me about it, at least. <laughs> I have a disease, you know. But if you go to this other webpage, they say you're an ageist. You're an ageist. You're discriminating against people of other ages. And it's, they're, hey, let me tell you, these guys aren't dummies. And they say, here's what they say. Do you, here, here's a way to evaluate if you're an ageist. Do you think that a 16-year-old who commits murder should be responsible as an adult? Because my answer to that is, yeah, I think so. But they say, if you don't think so, 
If you don't think they're responsible as an adult, you're an ageist. See, they already have one, one foot in the door. I'm like, okay, I agree with you on that. See, they start appealing in a very subtle and insidious way. And what is unthinkable to us today through these increments over the next 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years, I mean, has not history demonstrated, look back at Rome and Greece, that this, this can happen. And yet, um, I think it's really interesting how short-sighted people are. I was watching um, Politically Incorrect just to torture myself. Just for penance, <laughs> like Robert De Niro, okay, you've seen today, watch Politically Incorrect. And it was the same thing, it was a gay agenda thing, and, they're on there, and they have you know, four people on there talking, and one guy uh, representing the gay community said, you know what, it's not like we're prostitutes. And I thought, aren't the prostitutes going to be offended at that? I mean, can we not, if, if there's nothing wrong with that, why is there something wrong with this? I mean, haven't we already seen in movies the whole idea of the virtuous prostitute? Isn't that an overdone theme already? That everybody's miserable and everybody's a liar and everybody's a cheat except for her. She's the one who's virtuous and, wh- and what have you. And they make that statement. You have to make the argument, well, what's wrong with that? Why, you know, I could see next week having an argument between those two groups. And my friends, and, you know, I say this, I mean, it's, it's interesting and what have you, but I, I mean, in another sense, I mean, we should be weeping because this is devastating when they are targeting our children. You know, and you're thinking, how can I protect? And yet at the same time, we've got this, as a result of this, we've got this glorious private school homeschool movement going on, going, you know what, we're out. Now, I taught public school and what have you. I, you know, I mean, this is my opinion. I think it's biblical. I don't think the government has any business educating our children. That's my opinion. Okay? I mean, it's not an article of faith, I guess, in the OPC. That's my opinion. But I also recognize that if there is a public, this is, an inter- this is interesting to me, so I'm just talking, um, <laughs> that if there is a public school, if there is public school, they should be governed by the law of God. And people, you know, is that a contradiction? I don't think so, because I don't think Israel ever should have had a king but if they have a king, he should govern by the law of God. And the, the public schools did govern by the law of God for a while, but not anymore. Like I said, I used to do baccalaureates and prayers all the time, but not anymore. I got a phone call uh, from a friend of mine who uh, works for one of the county supervisors or state supervisors. He called me up. He goes, can you do the opening prayer at the Board of Supervisors meeting? I'm like, okay, Board of Supervisors? He goes, Paul, it's the most well-funded organization in the state of California. It's got, the biggest bu- it's got a bigger budget than the governor has. It's like a $10, million, $10 billion budget. He goes, we want, you know, want to know if you can come and do our little invocation. I go, yeah. I go, well, what do you want me to say? He goes, well, just the opening prayer. I go, all right. He goes, well, now, are you going to have kind of a non-sectarian prayer? And I go, well, Steve, I go, I'll, I'll pray. I'm not going to ask them all to ask Jesus into their hearts, if that's what you're asking. But I'll pray that God grants them the wisdom to do the things that are right, and blah, blah, blah. But I go, you know, I'm going to pray in the name of Christ because I don't think we can approach God apart from the name of Christ. Okay, he's all right, I'll get back to you. And he called me 20 minutes later and he said, sorry, you know, can't, no go. I go, all right. You know, so you have this situation where I think there, there are these organizations that should be governed by the law of God and they're not. Some of them shouldn't even exist. But I think, you know, the response of the Christian... Uh, in terms of certain movements where we go, you know what, the fire is at our feet, and so we need to do something about it. I don't think that's a, I don't think, by the way, that's a, that's a, uh, 
uh, an overly faithful thing to do. I mean, I think it's the right thing to do. I mean, understand my point. Um, political activism, you know, and I, you know, if you come to our church, you, you might never hear me talk politically, you know, because I just go verse by verse exegeting the text. But, you know, political activism became huge, um, and I think uh, rightfully so in terms of Christians participating in the 60s and sev- really in the 70s with uh, Francis Schaeffer you know, with the Great Evangelical Disaster and the Christian Manifesto. And I think it was an interesting thing because the fire was at our feet and they needed somebody to come along, come along and tell the Christian community what to do. And so it, it was really more of a response because the, 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 the damnable things were all around us and everybody was going, what should we do? And then Francis Schaeffer came along and said, here's what you ought to do. And I thought Francis Schaeffer had a lot of good things to say. But I think he was popular not because people just wanted to be faithful, but because they recognized in a pragmatic sense they needed to do something. But I think a real test of faith is, are you willing to do it even when the fire is not at your feet? Are you willing to do it simply because it's the right thing to do? Because the Bible says, thus saith the Lord, do it. We tend to be responsive in our Christianity. We tend to be pragmatic in our Christianity in terms of a culture, rather than a culture who looks at the Word of God enters, as we read earlier in Psalm 73, enters into the sanctuary of the Most High and views this world from the eyes of God. Anyways, I don't even remember what the question was, but what are we looking at here, Lynn? Okay. Uh, Yeah, Don. Um, Glenn, can you answer that question for me? <laughs> uh, the question is, I, I guess if I come in to repeat the question, people come into the church, you know, like they might come into a standard Orthodox Presbyterian church and you've got the Trinity hymnal and the, uh, the, the hymns are just thick with doctrine and uh, they start, I mean, and, and they're like, I can't handle this. And they're like, well, I've got to find a place where it's just a little bit more user-friendly, I guess, you know. And I understand that because I don't, I'm not familiar with the hymns to this very day. We, we do mainly hymns at our church, but we, only, we have about 60, I don't know, Dave, how many hymns do we have in our cycle? Yeah, we probably have about 60 hymns, you know, that we uh, kind of know. And uh, you guys, uh, my wife has even asked me, why do these people, sing, how, how is it they sing so loud? How is it? And, you know, somebody's just, well, they know the words, they know the songs, you know. And I know that when I go to the... Um, uh, the regional picnic, and we're out there singing these the hymns that are just like, I'm trying to figure out the doctrine in them, and we're out there in the park, and John Novinger's, you know, ta- yelling, and, and kids are running, and I'm like, what are we singing here? I can sympathize with somebody walking in going, I don't, I don't get it. Well, 
I'm not really an expert on uh, uh, worship music and, you know, and what, how that you know, all unfolds. I, I've done my research on it, and I, I have an idea of where I, you know, what I think it should look like at some level. But um, I will say this, though, in response, Don, to your question, and I was talking to Glenn about this uh, yesterday, um, that this whole modern reformation, if you will, you know, to coin the phrase of Horton and those guys, I think will include and needs to include uh, the, the worship in terms of the singing, the hymns. Um, it, it needs to somehow include that. Now, where and how and how that looks, I, I wouldn't venture, you know, I just don't have the expertise. I wouldn't mind being part of the committee to talk about it. Um, but there are a lot of rules that people seem to have uh, all under the regulative principle that are inconsistent with each other uh, you know, we, that we've, I think we need to kind of work through. But, um, I, I, but I, one of the things, if I can take your question and morph it a little bit, because we do have people come into our church and go, you know, your teaching is too heady, you know. So if I can just morph it to that, uh, and I think it might be a similar answer. Because we had a couple came to our church, and I used the word existential, and she, they left, and I said, you know, they didn't come back. I'm like, so what happened? Well, my wife didn't know what existential meant, so she just was like, I don't want to go here. And I kind of was trying to go, look at if you had to spend the rest of your life, first of all, I say, you know what, eventually you'll get it. Because the fact is, after a while, <laughs> I just begin to repeat myself. <laughs> I mean, I think I've been fairly interesting for, uh, what, uh, nine talks. Uh, at a talks 11 and 12, you're going to be like, didn't he already, aren't we already? It's like those old eight tracks, right? They just start going around again, you know. Didn't he already? Uh, it's a matter of kind of recognizing that if you had to spend the rest of your life in an elementary school or a graduate school, where would you choose? I would rather go to the graduate school because eventually I'll get it. You know, eventually you'll begin to understand. I have found that to be the case. I have found that our young kids, after four, five, six years, you know, they're 11, 12, all of a sudden they're 15, they get it. They understand. I, I go out of my way in my notes. I'll use, if I use a word, I'll put in parentheses a definition. And I, I'm always trying to define, define over and over again. And it's a matter of kind of letting people know when they come, you know what, it might be kind of heady for you here, it might be kind of lofty, it might be, but you know what, you'll get it and you'll understand it and it'll be deep, it'll be rich. Just, you know, you've got to just dedicate yourself to study and try to understand and, uh, and there's a richness to this and there's a depth to this. And, uh, and uh, you know, try to get them to understand that principle. That, uh, you know, for me, I mean, even when we're here, and I haven't really been singing because I'm, you know, with you because I'm losing my voice, but I close my eyes and I'm just listening to the, you know, so I'm in that, right, uh, singing uh, to one another, right, hymns, psalms, melody in your heart, making joyful noise to one another, right? I'm the other right now. <laughs> You're all making that to me, okay? I get to, and I just listen to the depth of it, and I'm just so fascinated, and, you know, Dave and I always talk about, you know what, we need to, we need to get that hymn on our loop, you know, we need to get it in there, uh, because you're not going to always get it. Well, again, Glenn and I were talking about this, how sometimes, you know, you don't mind if I keep mentioning you, right, Glenn? I won't make you stand up, you know. But it was a, good, it was a rich conversation. How, you know, sometimes uh, it's good to have uh, concepts that are a little simpler, you know. And, and, and not to do them over and over and over again, but it's simple, I get it. But I always think, you know, I've, if you noticed in modern, you know, worship, they have a very, very simple concept and they do it over and over and over and over again, right? 
I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. And, you know, 16 times. And um, there, to me, is a, a philosophical issue with that because I've talked to the worship leaders and they're, they're going, you know, it's, it's at a certain point where that, if you will, that experience then begins to kick in. It's almost a mantra thing. I think there's a danger there. Yet at the same time, at the regional picnic, I'm thinking, let's sing that one. Oh, let's, ring, let's sing that one over a few times because I'm not getting it. You know, I'd rather repeat those ones over and over because I'm having a hard time following. And, but it's all, I think, a matter of just recognizing that we're all in it's a process and there's some instruction. I don't think we need to be sensitive to the weaker brother at a certain level. And uh, in our church is a classic case for that because I have to explain, whenever I do infant ba- baptize an infant, I explain infant baptism. I've, I've put it down to a real succinct thing and I explain it so that anybody, any Baptist comes in, at least they'll be thinking about it and they'll go, this is so, because there, there are ideas, this is so unbiblical. And I'll give a 60-second, it is biblical, and uh, presentation. And I try to do that with a lot of things, including uh, the hymns. And, all, and I think it's a good idea sometimes to do, I did a whole sermon series on the hymns that we sing. So you're actually doing that. And Dave's incorporating our own, our own little hymn sings at our own church, you know, on Sunday evenings, you know, for people to learn the songs and learn the hymns and what have you. Yeah, Well, that's a really good question. The question basically is, you know, if, if we view a lot of the churches that are going out there as not very sound doctrinal churches, and yet the ch- they're exploding, you know, uh, are they really converts and what have you? Um, I think it's an important thing for us to wrestle with because, um, if I can put it this way, my, my Calvinistic understanding of soteriology is that the grace of God is so gracious that it can overcome bad doctrine. Now, I don't want to, now that's not a license for bad doctrine, but we've got to keep in mind, if we don't have a list, if we're not going to make a list of things that you have to do in order to be saved. I mean, this whole thing, you know, in fundamentalism is these are the, these are the things which you must do in order to be saved. You know, there's nothing we must do in order to be saved because God saves us. There is the necessary fruit of salvation. All right? But we've got to be careful not to make a list, even a doctrinal list, I think, of things that a person needs to live up to or have the intellectual acuity to grasp in order to be saved. We're saved by grace alone. Now, again, I don't think that should ever be a license for bad doctrine. You know, get, get my point here. We've got to make sure of this. And so uh, I can believe as a Calvinist that people can have pretty bad doctrine and still be saved. Uh, I mean, I was, at a full, I was a full-blown Arminian dispensational. I was that whole thing you just listed, and I think I was saved. I think we have to trust that there is, a, there is, in fact, power in the gospel. And that even though uh, there are more or less perfect churches, and certainly churches come to a place where they become synagogues of Satan, right, when they just buy into the lie altogether, we have to recognize that the doctrines that the Apostle Paul was addressing at some of the churches in, like I said earlier, Galatia and Corinth, were terribly heretical. And yet it was still to the saints at, right? 
And so I, I don't want to say this in such a, a way as to in any way uh, belittle the idea of sound doctrine any more than uh, I would belittle the, uh, the necessity to pursue righteousness uh, you know, uh, the exp- at the expense of the gospel and so on. Yet at the same time, I think we have to recognize my point in saying that was the fact that the Bible's there and it's being read is something that God uses to save souls. And like you, yourself, and myself included, uh, that, was our, that was our platform into which we came into the, the Christian faith. And um, so, again, if you understand my answer to that question, I don't think that we should ever uh, um, de-emphasize the importance of sound doctrine, ever, any more than we should de-emphasize the importance of righteous living. But we have to recognize that when the gospel goes out, people will be saved. God will, God will change people's hearts. And it may be a while, you know, before they come to a place where, you know, they embrace, you know, what we might feel comfortable with, the sound doctrine. But that doesn't mean, you know, I, I like that passage in the, uh, in the confession that talks about more or less perfect churches. You know, and I think there are, in my opinion, more or less perfect churches. And we have to recognize, you know, there comes a place, I think, where we recognize in the same way there are more or less perfect people, but we don't excommunicate everybody, right? And they're more or less perfect churches. But um, we, I've had people come to our church from churches that I really disagree with doctrinally. But I thought they had a bad reason for leaving their church. I sent them back. And then, you know, I, I want, if they're going to leave their church, I think they should have a good reason. And so I, I think we have to kind of just recognize the grace of God when it comes to those types of things. And, uh, and I think as Calvinists, we all, we all the more should recognize the grace of God when it comes to people who don't have it all figured out. Because in the final analysis, keep in mind, we don't have it all figured out either. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, are the Reformed churches exploding? Uh, Well, we have people there, right? Um, Sam, Volta. And uh, who else do we have? Okay, Mike. We have people there, and, you know, they're making their headways. They're making their influence. And, uh, but like I said earlier, when I asked people to raise their hand who came to conversion as a result of a Reformed evangelist, and we had a small one, I think that's something that we as the Reformed community, again, that's not my topic for this week, but I think we as the, you know, as the Reformed community can really focus more on, and that is uh, evangelism and not just relying upon people getting frustrated with the doctrine at the church they're at and then coming to your church. But getting, you know, I'll tell you, we just had a lady come to a faith in our church. She was a Muslim. Uh, I, I baptized her. And, you know, I, I remember I, it was so long since we had somebody who was an adult who had not been baptized. I had to call B.J. Gorell. I'm like, hey, we have a woman in our church. She's, she's Muslim. She came, to, she came between the hallways. She's been coming for a year. And she finally goes, I... Um, I believe I want to convert. I want to be baptized. And I'm like, okay, what? What do you? What do you want? And I actually had to call BJ and go, okay, what do we do first, baptizer or the member thing? Because it was just such a, a a new thing to have an adult who'd never been baptized, you know. And um, but we've had some new converts, you know. And I think that uh, who have, haven't come through another system, uh, that's rare because almost everybody, we live in an evangelized culture and a lot of people were raised in the church at one way or one level or another. But I think it's something we can and should be considering in terms of how we would be most effective evangel- evangelistically. Okay. 
All right, we're, uh, we're out of time, and uh, so let's go ahead and uh, take a little break, and it's lunchtime.